Nibs is a native of Helena, Arkansas, and has just retired as senior pastor at Oakhurst Presbyterian Church in January, where he pastored since 1983. Oakhurst Presbyterian is a nationally recognized leader in multicultural ministries, having been featured in Time Magazine, NBC News, NPR, CNN, CBS Radio, Christian Science Monitor, and Presbyterians Today. In 2003, the church was named as one of 300 excellent Protestant congregations in the United States by a Lilly-based study. Nibs is married to the Reverend Caroline Leach, and they have two children and two grandchildren. He and Caroline were the first clergy couple to serve in a local church as co-pastors in the former PCUSA, and they were pastors at Oakhurst Presbyterian until her retirement in 2012. He is the author of four books, including While We Run This Race, Confronting the Power of Racism in a Southern Church, and most recently, a book of sermons published in September entitled Deep Waters, Sermons for a New Vision. And I noticed that that's all there. There it is. For your, uh, you can get one of those. Uh, he has written numerous articles for Journal for Preachers, and he is a regular contributor to uh, the Feasting on the Word series. Uh, Nibs also writes a monthly column for Hospitality Magazine and has written other articles uh, for numerous publications and books. In 2007, he was inducted into the MLK Board of Preachers at Morehouse College. And if that's not enough, and if he has any additional time left, he has been adjunct faculty at both Columbia Seminary and Chandler School of Theology. Central to Nibs' ministry and activism is a vivid and powerful vision of the liberating power of the gospel in a world head captive by the power of death. Nibs sees that power take specific form in the history and culture of the USA, in the idols of race, gender, sexual identity, nationalism, militarism, consumerism, and economic privilege. As a southern white male taught racism by family, church, and society, Nibs knows the power of death and its corresponding cultural idols very well. His experience as a young white southerner whose encounter with the humanity of African Americans began a lifelong journey of repentance and liberation from the power of racism has played a key role in shaping his theological vision. It is worthwhile highlighting three consistent dimensions of that vision, which will serve as an introduction to his word for us today. First, the freedom of God and God's word from the grasp of our desire for identity, security, and power is essential to the gospel's being both good and liberating news. Second, the goodness and liberating power of the gospel does not come to us apart from our encounter with the neighbor, particularly those neighbors who we have been taught to fear as enemies and strangers. Third, nothing does more to lay bare the mystifying and terrifying complexity of racism than Nib's insistent testimony to being taught racism by good people who also taught him about the redeeming love of God. Nib's theological vision and voice bars all attempts by white folks to escape from complicity in the reality of racism by way of their identity as a good person and a Christian. The power of racism can still hold the heart of the good white liberal firmly in its grip. Nib Stroop has been and continues to be God's faithful gadfly. The prophet called from outside the palace gates, be they of ecclesial or state power, or perhaps even an institutionalized self-assured Bardianism, Bardianism, right? uh, reminding us that God's liberating word must come ever strange and ever anew, as much to good white Christians in the American church as to the world whom God loves. Please join me in welcoming the Reverend Nib Stroop as our speaker this morning. 
So I appreciate you staying for this closing plenary session, and I appreciate uh, Peter giving that introduction from Chris Bozel. I don't know if you've ever met Chris Bozel. He's a very tall person, so uh, he and I often made a good contrast with one another, and I give thanks for his leadership and his ministry. He's been very helpful to me in drafting this address, and I give thanks for this opportunity to talk with you about Bart and his influence on me and in the world and uh, maybe even working with Bart to in the kind of world in which we live. I do want to advertise the book just one more time. Um, it's a book of uh, sermons called Deeper Waters, uh, Sermons for a New Vision. It was edited by two Princeton graduates, Colin Cornell and Chris Bozel, who you just heard. It's endorsed on the back by another Princeton graduate, uh, Ted Smith, who now teaches down at Candler. Uh, and it's endorsed by two Pulitzer Prize winning uh, folk, uh, Leonard Pitts, who's a columnist, and Doug Blackman, who wrote a very powerful book on uh, slavery in the 20th century called uh, Slavery by Another Name. So if you've not read that book, please encounter it and take care of it and learn from it. So here we go. She comes to the graveyard alone, just as the dawn is breaking. She comes to give her beloved teacher a proper burial. He was lynched by a mob with the approval of the government. You probably know this passage. It's the 20th chapter of John, and it's Mary Magdalene who comes to the tomb of Jesus. When she sees the stone rolled away from the tomb, she doesn't think, Hallelujah, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. No, she doesn't do that. Because her heart and her perceptual apparatus are still captured by death. She thinks the body's been stolen. So she hurries back to get the male disciples. John tells us it's Peter, and as John says, the one whom Jesus loved. They run to the tomb. They don't provide much help. But they do see that the tomb is empty. And though they are wondering, they don't yet believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. And here's an important point to note in this story. The risen Jesus chooses not to appear to them. They're at the tomb. I've talked with folk and say, well, the reason Jesus appeared to Mary and the women is that they were at the tomb. Well, John says something different. The men are at the tomb also. Jesus chooses not to appear to them. He chooses to appear to Mary Magdalene. She is the primary witness. We need to be clear. The primary witness is a woman named Mary Magdalene. And as Bart would laugh at us, she doesn't recognize him. She's the primary witness, but she doesn't recognize him. She's still captured by the power of death. It's not that she's rebellious and says, oh, it is Jesus, but I'm not going to acknowledge it. She cannot recognize him. She talks to him. She sees him. She thinks he's the caretaker of the cemetery, but she's not able to recognize the risen Jesus standing right in front of her. Why not? Well, we're not told, but my thought is that she's captured by the power of death. And I've always been fascinated by Mary's captivity. And I've noticed that so many of us are captured in that way. We don't recognize the risen Jesus standing right in front of us. It's a struggle for most of our lives. But finally, finally, she recognizes. Anybody know how she comes to recognize him? Not just his voice, she's been talking with him. He calls her name. That'll preach. He calls her name. Mary. And her liberation begins. Teacher, and she runs to hold on to him. 
But he says, don't hold on to me, but go tell your brothers and sisters what you've seen. Tell them. And so she runs to tell the others, I have seen the Lord. But the male disciples don't believe her. Nothing new in that. Mary tries to get the men out of the upper room. Susan goes to a church in Brown Memorial in Baltimore and uh, had a great sermon preached a while back about Mary knocking on the door at the upper room. They won't let her in, but she's seen the vision, and they won't come out because they haven't seen the vision. It will take the risen Jesus calling their names before they recognize him. He indicates then to all the disciples, male and female, that their task now will be to spread the good news of God's life-giving power to those who will not see the risen Jesus. The risen Jesus gives a high calling for all the women and men who follow him. Do as Mary did. Go and tell. I have seen the Lord. So I think one of our tasks as pastors and at this Bart's Pastors Conference is to look at ways that we can be like Mary Magdalene. With the help of Carl Bart and others, how can we learn to recognize the risen Jesus standing right in front of us? How can we help others to do this and be able to say, we have seen the Lord? Now, as it will be readily apparent, if it's not already in this address, I'm certainly not a Bart scholar, but I do thank Ray Carr, who's here today. I went in his workshop yesterday, so I want to uh, acknowledge his leadership, but also I'm going to paraphrase him. He said he was not there to exegete Carl Bart. He was there to utilize him and to build on him. So that's what I'm going to try to do in this work today because I do resonate with his emphases and with his unembarrassed proclamation that faith in God is superior to knowledge of God, especially in our scientific, materialist, literal, literal truth kind of world. And as a pastor and a preacher, at least a retired one, I applaud his emphasis on preaching and proclamation as one of the three pillars of revelation from God. It's the least of the three, says Bart. The word obviously, over everything. But under that, Bart says, Scripture and then proclamation are the two lights that flow from there. So in this presentation, I'll be talking about those, and I'm also, towards the end, going to suggest a way that we can supplement uh, Karl Barth's theology. And I'd like to add a fourth line of revelation, that come, or a third line that comes from the Word, the Word overall, and then Scripture and proclamation. I'm going to add, try to add a fourth and see what you think about it, but more of that later. I do want to thank Karl Barth for his insistence on the reality and the primacy of God and even the unknowability of God. Barth insists on the reality of God no matter what we tell ourselves, no matter what the culture tells us, no matter what anybody says. Barth insists on the reality of God and an unbridgeable gap between God and us. This unknowability, this inability to know God is on our own is both comforting and discomforting. It's comforting because God cannot and will not be reduced to our systems and our knowledge. God doesn't belong to us. We belong to God. That's one of Bart's central themes. That's comforting. It's also discomforting because how do we know who God is? Is the real God the one who approved American slavery? Or the one who ordered the extermination of the native peoples here in New Jersey? Or is the real God the one who called Martin Luther King to serve in a new way in King's Kitchen in Montgomery after a midnight call telling him his house was going to be blown up in a few minutes? How do we know who God is? 
and what God is doing in our postmodern world. A world that seems to center on materialism and militarism and racism and sexism and ecological destruction. How do we know who God is? Well, fortunately for us, Karl Barth reminds us that God is not waiting on us to discover her and encounter her. Rather, God is like that woman in Luke's chapter 11 in that parable where the woman is turning over the furniture in the house looking for that lost coin. So we need Bart's emphasis so much on God as the center right now because we live in a dangerous time in America, a time that some of us, like me, I guess I was just naive and foolish and I believed in the culture rather than God. I thought we were kind of past that. But now the tides of racism and sexism and xenophobia and materialism are rapidly rising, and these tides are rising with people using the name of God as the driving force. We desperately need pastors and congregations to step up and witness to the values of the God we know in Jesus Christ, values such as love and justice and equity. As Bart emphasized so well, God has graciously and even stunningly decided to reveal herself to us in the Word, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bart makes it clear that this revelation in Jesus Christ is the one, the central source of our knowledge of God. It is the supreme one, and all other glimpses of revelation are measured by this one, by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, we see what it means to be a child of God. And I wish that Bart had put more emphasis on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Everybody I've mentioned this to, like Chris Bowles, said, oh, he does that. But actually, in the end, he really does not emphasize the life and ministry of Jesus enough for me, and maybe not for you, and maybe not for the world. And I know that the revolution in Bart's thinking came through St. Paul's writings. And Paul's letters left out the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So maybe that influenced Bart. I'm not a Bartian enough to know, but I do wish he had put more emphasis on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Because the biblical Jesus fired people up. They were astounded and inspired and scandalized and offended and challenged by Jesus. But most of all, they were loved. And they were called into new life by Jesus. Now, of course, they misunderstood him, clearly. They had no idea. They were hoping he was going to overthrow Rome. But still, still something in that presence called them out. And some of them left their routines and followed him because they felt their hearts and their beings burning in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So one of the reasons I want us to reemphasize the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is that I grew up, as Peter said, in the white segregated church of the South. And we largely ignored the life and ministry of Jesus Christ because it was so scary and so incendiary. How can we hold slaves, whether it's slavery in the 1860s or neo-slavery in the 1960s? How can we hold people as slaves and be Christians? We did it. How did we do it? By ignoring the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We emphasize that it's the cross that counts for everything. That's the main event that God really didn't care about this earthly life. Oh, he had to treat people nicely, but it's the cross that counts. All that mattered was whether we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, and then we get to heaven when we died. Now, for people held as slaves, I understand, yeah, you need to hold on to that because you ain't got much else. But for those of us in power, it enabled us to escape and hold people as slaves and say, yeah, we can do it in the name of Jesus. That was the meaning of our lives. 
Now, I don't blame this on Karl Barth. But I do think his lack of emphasis on the life and ministry of Jesus makes his theology more easily appropriated by those who would kill and dominate and oppress others in this life. We need the biblical Jesus Christ. And like those first followers of every generation, we are caught in our finitude and our mortality, in the historical and cultural nature of our being. But we also long for and seek transcendence. As St. Augustine put it, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. That longing is met in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And without that component of the word of God, we are easily driven into the arms of the idols, as we see now in Trumpian America. Trump speaks to the deep anxieties that dwell in us all. And his answer is that we should find relief in the God of the white male domination and death. And indeed, that's God's will. Without an emphasis on the ministry and life of Jesus Christ, we have no answer for these idolatrous powers. And it's why so many, why so many white evangelicals support Donald Trump. Our witness as pastors must return to the biblical Jesus, to the powerful love and mercy and call to justice that the first followers of Jesus experienced in his life and ministry. Healing and loving and welcoming and challenging and renewing and offering a whole new way of seeing God and seeing themselves and seeing the world. This is the life and ministry of the Word. And that moves us to the second part of the Word, the crucifixion. In the crucifixion of Jesus, we see God entering into the realm and depths of human suffering in ways that boggle our minds and our hearts. We see the harsh and difficult truth that in the end we say, no, no, we don't want you in our lives. We would rather kill you than be transformed by your love. In the cross, we see the unbelievable idea that the great I am, the center of all that is, the creator of all that is, the God whose name could not even be spoken by those first followers of Jesus. This God has entered into our most intimate and vulnerable spots into immense and painful suffering. Coming to us in love, Jesus finds abandonment and rejection and a torturous death. Killed by a lynch mob, to use James Cone's powerful metaphor from his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Now, as I indicated before, I was raised and nurtured in the white segregated South, in the white church in Arkansas and the Mississippi River side of the Delta. One of the reasons that God is so deep in my heart is that the wonderful white people of First Presbyterian Church taught me about the grace of God. And it's not just in words, they did it in deeds. My father abandoned my family when I was a year old in 1947. I never heard from him again until I was 23. And I will forever praise my mother who raised me as a single working mom and sought to be mother and father to me. But despite her love and her presence in my life, the central definition I gave myself was boy abandoned by his father. Why didn't he come to see me? What was wrong with me? The white people of First Presbyterian Church in Helena helped me to hear a different definition of myself. I might feel like boy abandoned by my father. I might define myself that way, but they taught me that my true definition was boy claimed by my father, the father we know in Jesus Christ. It was powerful. It was a great gift, and I will ever be grateful for it. But they also taught me other gods, too. 
They taught me racism and sexism and homophobia. In the context of the cross, they taught me the power of redemptive violence, that at the heart of God is redemptive violence, the idea that God has to kill somebody in order for there to be reconciliation between God and humanity. To put it in its simplest and crudest form, our lives are so offensive to God that he wants to kill us, but he killed Jesus instead. That's the kind of theology I grew up with. This Godhead violence is so strong in Southern white religion because violence is such an integral part of Southern life. We white people believe, not just back then, but still believe that violence is necessary in order to keep white men at the top and to keep white people in control of the lives and bodies of black and native and Hispanic and other peoples. And as we all know, it's not just a Southern phenomenon. It is in the American marrow the America founded by the Europeans who took the land from those who were here when we came and who enslaved others to work the land. And in order to do this and maintain it, we came to believe in redemptive violence and that God believes in redemptive violence. And that redemptive violence is indeed in the Godhead itself. I became demonically possessed by racism growing up. And its power is so great in me that it still pops up. I don't believe there'll ever be a time when I don't see race first. Now, God may shift that, but I don't, I've been taught so well, when I look at a person with brown skin, I automatically move, not to the N-word, but I do move to racial dynamics. And so I have to work on that all the time. That's part of my demonic possession. And often when Jesus comes to liberate me, I join the townspeople in fear and tell him to get out of here. Don't mess with my systems. I want to share a second passage as a reminder that we should always engage the Bible with ourselves, but also with others, that the Bible is a conversation with us and God and the community. Working as a pastor in a multicultural church taught me the importance of context and community and hearing God's Word in Scripture. I bring my context to the Bible, and of course the Bible has a context, but it's also important to have the context of others, especially different others in the Bible study. At Oakhurst, we were committed to Bible study, and we did it often. And I remember one passage again in Luke. We were working our way through the Gospel of Luke, studying a passage every week, and we got to the passage of the first ten verses of the seventh chapter, where there's an encounter between Jesus and a centurion in Capernaum. The story seems to be about the authority of Jesus and the faith of the centurion and that authority. You probably know the story. The centurion says, you don't have to come to my house. I'm a man of authority. You're a man of authority. If you say it, you'll heal my slave. And he did it and healed his slave. And Jesus was pretty impressed with the centurion. As I prepared to lead this Bible study, I intended to take it towards such issues as faith healing and the power of faith. But the African-American participants in the Bible study raised another issue. Why didn't Jesus order the centurion to free his slave? Did Jesus, does this passage mean that Jesus gave implicit, if not explicit, blessings to the institution of slavery? Was the mission of Jesus to change society? Or was it just a mission to individuals? Was his mission to heal individuals such as this person held as a slave without healing the society that created the sickness called slavery? Now, those of us like me classified as white in this Bible study, we had accepted slavery as part of the social background of this passage, part of the background and not having to do with the real meaning and power of the story. But those who were classified as black had a different context 
The real meaning and power of the story centered on slavery and Jesus' opinion of slavery. Well, I had not expected that at all because of my context. But we went on to have a lively discussion on Jesus and slavery, on the Bible and slavery, on the differences between Roman slavery and American slavery. But I learned then that in our multicultural world in which we now live, this idea of context becomes huge and important. How do other contexts inform the Western understanding of the Bible and of God? We in the West have claimed ownership of it for many centuries, but it didn't begin in the West, and it's clearly shifting now to other cultures and especially to the South. And Christianity in the 21st century will have to deal with this issue. So I've returned to Bart's view of the Bible that it's explosive and dangerous. It's helped me to understand the otherness of God and even the independence of the Bible. God doesn't belong to any one culture. White men can't claim God and can't claim the Bible. Difficult news for us. And if the Bible itself weren't shaky enough as a primary source for God's revelation to us, Bart's other primary source is even shakier and often feels like quicksand. That's preaching and proclamation. I do like Bart's emphasis on preaching. I'm a preacher, so obviously I like it. He once put it this way, Protestants would be better off if we could recover the same attitude towards preaching that Catholics have to the sacrament of the Eucharist. Yeah, I like that. My goal in the sermon was always for the congregation and as individuals, as community, to have our story engaged by the story, by God's word as heard and experienced in the biblical text, filtered by me as a preacher, by their journeys, and by our journey together. All we hope, steered by the Holy Spirit so that God's word spoke to all of us. Of course, we have a huge problem in the 21st century as congregations shrink and individualism continues its march to dominance. Seeing the proclamation on TV or the computer screen is not the same as worship and preaching in the incarnate community in the presence of others. That's beyond my level of expertise. So somebody like my daughter or somebody in that age range, younger and savvier than me, will have to figure that one out. But we do need to figure it out because incarnate community is essential. That incarnate community at Oakhurst was so important, black and white and Asian and Latinx, multiracial, gay and lesbian and trans, uneducated, educated, poor and comfortable. And I tried to be mindful of the many contexts out there, meeting the biblical text and my reflections on it in the sermon. And when I was not aware of it, I was too dense, somebody would remind me of it, and I give thanks for that. So my pastoral experience at Oakhurst taught me about my captivity to the power of the prince of the air. And it was the multicultural context, the engagement of our neighbors, that helped us to see a new reality that Jesus Christ is calling, that God is calling into being in Jesus Christ. So I'm grateful for Bart's emphasis on the otherness of God, independent of what we think about God or who God is. As a youth and later as a young adult, I wish that I had known that God is not the same as white male dominator. I wish I had known that. I'm, I still carry that image in my heart. I wish I had known that there were other possibilities that would save me a lot of problems. But that's what I carry in my heart. It's precisely because of the distance between God and us, there must be touch points to if we know God at all. So Bart emphasizes the primacy of God's revelation to us in Jesus Christ and flowing out of that scripture and proclamation. I want to add a third one that flows out of that and have you think about it 
We have the Word revealed in Jesus Christ, the Word written in Scripture, and the Word proclaimed in preaching and pastoring. But I want us to consider a fourth source of special revelation from God. The Word engaging with us. The Word is neighbor. I want to lift that up. I'm not trying to do anything to Bart, just trying to build on Bart. Uh, utilize him, as Ray Carr said. I want to suggest that we need to see the neighbor as a fourth source of special revelation. Bart said God can reveal through us through a dead dog if God wants to. I'm not trying to go there. I'm trying to go to, uh, for us to think about how we look for God's revelation to us. The idea of the neighbor is not just the other, not the not us. Neighbor is the other whom God has already established a relationship with, with God and now in Jesus Christ with us. So in the neighbor, we begin to see a deeper side of life and even of ourselves because God is revealing herself to us through the neighbor. We must use discipline and practice and intentionality to engage the neighbor in order to find God's revelation to us. In relationship to the neighbor, we must use the same approach that we use in our engagements with the Word, Jesus Christ, with Scripture, and with proclamation. Of course, Scripture is, I mean, of course, the Word of God and Jesus Christ is over everything, but then scripture and proclamation, and I'd like to add neighbor. My experience has indicated that the neighbor is a powerful source of God's revelation to me and to others, and I know that Carl Bart, if he even cares about what I'm saying, is shaking his head at using my own experience as a touchstone here, but it's an important reference. I had no idea of my deep captivity to sin until God's revelation came to me through the neighbor. I have had many revelations from God through the neighbor, but I want to share one that stands out. It was early on in our pastorate at Oakhurst, and of course I've received many gifts of revelation from Caroline, who's my primary theologian, and I give thanks for her being in my life. But in this morning I received a call in the pastor at Oakhurst, a phone call from one of our African-American members. She had a concern involving the black youth at our church, and they were vast majority black youth at that point. And we disagreed on her concern. And as she continued to push, I began to feel some heat rising in our conversation. And I asked her, why are you so angry about this? And she replied, I'm not angry. What makes you think that I'm angry? Well, you sounded angry to me. I'm not angry. If I was angry, believe me, you would know it. <laughs> well, you sounded angry to me. But she wouldn't let it go because I believe God had called her to be a neighbor to me. She stepped it up. Said, no, I'm not angry, but I believe I know why you thought I was angry. Do you want to hear why? <laughs> well, I had a long pause as I see you're, <laughs> you're catching the story. I wondered how to respond, and finally I felt obligated to say, okay, let's hear it. She said, you were feeling uncomfortable with a black member standing up to you as a white pastor. You're not accustomed to black people calling you into question, are you? So you projected your discomfort onto me and tried to blame me for it. That's the problem with many of you white folks. You may talk a good game, but when it comes down to it, y'all aren't used to engaging us as peers and sharing power with us. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, all right. Well, I didn't say it yes right away. I had another long pause. 
Was it true? Was my racism showing? Should I acknowledge it? But God had sent her to me as neighbor. I didn't perceive it at that point, but God had sent her to me as neighbor. So I had the courage to respond, I think you might be right. I don't have much practice with black folk as peers. I've got a lot to learn. And as I said those words, I knew that it was over, that I might even have to leave Oakhurst because my racism was exposed. But to my surprise, this black member thanked me for my honesty. She said, not many white folk are going to uh, say they have some racism in it. Most of you white folk try to deny your racism. We know all about it. You don't need to deny it. We see it all the time. So it was a gift from God. God had made a huge revelation to me through this woman, his neighbor to me. This neighbor felt that I was worthy of being engaged on race. I've talked with her many times since. She said, no, yeah, I don't want to engage most white people on this because it's a pain in the rear end. I know what I'm going to get. So I don't engage, but I felt like you might be worth it. She took me on, and she helped me to see race in myself in a whole new way. She was neighbor to me. And I began to count on God's sending neighbors to me to help me see new revelations and have more conversions. And the neighbor became an essential revelation of the word for me. And I believe it should be added as a fourth category to scripture, a third category, to scripture and proclamation under the powerful rubric of the word. And if you're wondering about this, I want to share one more major revelation that Jesus had, a revelation from God to him through the neighbor. In Matthew 15, 21 to 28, Jesus is tired and discouraged. He just had a major conflict with the religious leaders on the need for ritual hand washing. They come out to get onto him. They come out into his space, and they either can't understand or they won't understand. So he goes into Gentile territory, and he encounters a Canaanite woman who wants him to heal his daughter, her daughter. She shouts after him, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. There are those demons again. have to pay attention to the demons. But Jesus is so tired, he doesn't answer at all. No, no energy for this. You may be feeling like that now as you think about, I've got a sermon to get ready for tomorrow. Yet the neighbor woman is persistent, and she bugs his disciples. And they tell Jesus, get rid of this woman. She's pestering us. So Jesus agrees, and he seeks to be gentle with her. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman won't give up. God sent her as neighbor to Jesus. She begs him. She kneels down at his feet, Lord, help me. And then Jesus must be tougher on her. She won't take no for an answer. So he must be blunt with her. It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. A big emphasis on how you say dogs. That, that passage turns a lot. We don't know how he said it. I put that in there. But this woman believes in Jesus. And in his power. And she's a neighbor who's been sent to him from God. She reminds him that while he may think that his power does not extend to the Gentiles, that he may think he doesn't have the energy for the Gentiles, he may even think that she is a dog. But God's made her to be part of the beloved community. She belongs. So she says to him, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She's in the house. 
She belongs in the household of God. And because God has sent her as neighbor to Jesus, she challenges Jesus. And to his credit, Jesus gets it. Woman, great is your faith. And her daughter's healed. Jesus is deepened in this encounter with the neighbor sent from God. His mission is deeper and broader than even he thought it was. This neighbor changes Jesus. By the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where this story is, when the risen Jesus appears to the disciples and gathers them and sends them out, he doesn't say to them, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He tells them to go to all nations, go to all people. And it may be that this woman helped him understand that. Now, this is a dangerous passage and a dangerous approach. Indeed, when I preached a sermon on this manner in Presbytery meeting in 1997, I was charged with heresy by one session in the Presbytery for saying that Jesus was a human being, that Jesus learned something from this neighbor sent by God, that Jesus participated in the fallen structures of humanity. But one of the truths of this story, I think if we take it as it is, is that this neighbor woman came to Jesus and helped him to receive a special revelation from God. It's why Jesus emphasized neighbor so much in his teachings and in his ministry. Now, if you're like me, I'm a white man. I don't know what the rest of you are thinking. But if you're like me, you want to join that lawyer in the gospel and ask, Je and ask Jesus, well, okay, if that's right, just who is my neighbor then? And Jesus gives an oxymoron as an answer. The parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. A reminder of how important the neighbor is as a vehicle for God's revelation to us. God is sending neighbors to us to help us see and receive revelation from God. And of course, God is asking us to be neighbors to others. And in that same parable, Jesus reminds us that our neighbors are not the ones we choose. That's the way we like it. Yeah, I like the neighbors I choose. The neighbors are the one whom God chooses. Bart also gives an intriguing answer to this lawyer's question, just who is my neighbor? In a short but powerful essay, if you've never read it, it's entitled Poverty. It was in, published in 1949. He says that Scripture indicates that God is on the side of the poor. He quotes, God is in no wise takes up a neutral position between the poor person and the rich person. The rich may take care of their own future. God's on the side of the poor. Jesus also ties God and neighbor tightly together in all three synoptic gospels. When he's asked, well, what is the essence? What's the greatest commandment? He replies that God must be at the center, but you must love neighbor. That must be tied to that centrality of God. By tying them together in this manner, Jesus makes the neighbor the compass for our relationship with God. How do we know if we're loving God with all our heart and all our strength and all our mind? By looking at how we relate to our neighbor and not just the neighbor that we choose, but the neighbor whom God has chosen. Now in the essay by Bart, I just quoted, Bart opened the door, I think, for this direction on thinking about God's continuing revelation to us. We must first look for the neighbor in the poor and oppressed and marginalized at the very ones from whom we are trying to escape. The Jesus part of the word drives us there, the life and ministry of Jesus. And that also seems to me to be a beginning point for other conversations about how we might weave Bart and liberation theology together, parts of theology that often don't fit well together. Bart brings Christ, liberation theology brings Jesus, and putting them together 
we get the word. Now, Chris Bozer, my friend that wrote the introduction, said, Bart never separated Jesus from Christ, but let's think about it and work on it. So, yes, I think that we must add neighbor as a fourth category of special revelation from God. The idea of neighbor serves as a check on our individual and communal tendency to bend the word of God and to bend God to our way of thinking. Bending God towards an approval of separating families at the border. Bending God towards an approval of racism and sexism, which the white Presbyterians taught me. Not because they were bad people, but because they were captive to the powers, to the demonic powers. In the end, they put race at the center. Our church went through a tremendous neighborhood transition. 900 members, this is before we came, all of them white. Black folk moved into the neighborhood. 90% of the white folk left the church because they didn't think the gospel of Jesus Christ could stand the power of race. They thought they had God at the center because the neighbor was not important. They were able to do this because of this tendency to diminish the neighbor as a special revelatory category from God. So I hope that here at Princeton, I think this is the center of the Bardian world, that you would consider wrestling with this idea. Just think what it would mean in our seminary curricula if we put neighbor as a third special category of revelation and spent just as much time on it as we do biblical studies and preaching. Just what would it mean if we left here today and went down to the poor people's campaign in D.C.? because that's where we'll find God's revelation in the neighbor today. Especially in these days as we break down into tribalism, the idea of neighbor, I think, must be seen as a central source of revelation from God. The neighbor is the one whom God uses and chooses to demonstrate our captivity to the powers to us. God uses the neighbor as a main way to offer us possibility of some liberation from our captivity. So I want to celebrate Bart's emphasis on God at the center of all that is and the center of our lives. No matter what's going on in our lives, whether we're held as slaves, whether we're separated from our mamas at the border, whether we are doing the separating and crushing people, God remains the center. And if you're wondering what that means or if you're blessed to wonder if we really have God at the center, the Word, the Bible, the proclamation, and now the neighbor will help us gain clarity. This centeredness will help us see and begin to live in a new reality. The God movement that God is bringing into being, even in these kind of days. And in this new reality, we will find that God has broken down the dividing walls of hostility. Now, the breach in that wall is costly. It has been broken down in the blood of Jesus. But the great gift of the God movement is that when we look through that hole in the dividing wall, what we will see are not the monsters that we've been taught to fear. What we will find is what God intends us to find in the God movement, the sisters and brothers for whom our hearts are longing. Word revealed in Jesus Christ. That's the central revelation. That's one of Bart's great gifts forever in theology, I think. Word written in Scripture. Word proclaimed in preaching and pastoring and life of the church. And now a word engaged in the neighbor. That's where we are. Let's go out and deepen our witness as pastors, as parts of the church. And let us join the primary witness, Mary Magdalene, and celebrate and share. We have seen the Lord. Amen. Thank you. <laughs>